I would argue that they are um, connected in this way. If you look at chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, I looked at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun. I saw the tears of the oppressed. They had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. He picks up that theme again in verse 8. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. Uh, so periodically throughout the book, Solomon's going to weave in these themes about uh, authority and leadership and the role of the king and all those sorts of things. And I think that's what he's doing here. He's picking up those ideas and he's saying part of the fault for injustice certainly falls upon the one in charge of the whole thing. So the sense of the verses, although they're difficult both in the translations and seemingly in the original, is that there is a hierarchical structure. One is under another, is under another, is under another, all the way up to the king. So do not be shocked if you see oppression, because all it takes is one break in that link, and you could have a whole bunch of bad people under one official, right? Uh, and so there's certainly flaws in human government that can lead to oppression. And yet, verse 9, after all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. The NIV takes it a slightly different way, something along the lines of the idea that the king profits from all of them. And so it's sort of like there's a hierarchy downward, and then there's also a flow of benefit upward. And so, in terms of wisdom, it would make sense if the king made sure that this structure was working, or else this structure is not going to work properly either. Either because people rebel against the authority, or um, just because of greed and corruption of the officials between the people and the king himself. The way that I think that that connects to the majority of this passage, verses 10 through 20, is this question of money. Because the reason that government structures often go wrong is because of this question of money. And it very well may be that the uh, officials in question in verses 8 and 9 are corrupt with regards to the two problems that we see in verses 10 through 20, which, in my mind, are greed and stinginess. And so I think that as we look at those, we'll see how it applies to verses 8 and 9 as well. But let's look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. If you had $1,000, would you want more? If you had a million dollars, would you want more? Think about it. So, the average house in Royal Oak goes for something between, let's say, $160,000 and a million dollars. If you had a million dollars, you could buy pretty much any house you wanted in Royal Oak. Now, maybe you don't want to live in Royal Oak, but I'm just using that as an example. What if you had $5 million? What if you had $10 million? Would any of that be enough? Because at a certain point, you stop asking the question, do I have enough to meet my needs? You start asking the question, what am I going to do with all of this, right? I know that's not typically the problem that we struggle with, but just as a thought experiment, um, what would you do with it? 
If you had five million dollars, what would you possibly spend it on? Okay, you could invest it. To what end? What would investing get you? More money. But why? Is there ever a point at which the human heart is satisfied with something? Um, sometimes you start doing something, and you do it for a while without thinking about it, and then you pause and you ask yourself, why am I doing this? Maybe it's a particular hobby, or a particular job, or something like that, and you stop and you evaluate, why am I doing this? And you say, is my reason to exceed this person over here? Let's say that that's my goal. What will I do when I surpass that person? Come up with a new person that I've got to be better than in some way, right? Or what if my goal is to have a certain amount in my bank account? It's not like it's not a goal that will satisfy. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with its income. Solomon just saying it is an un uh, it's an impossible goal. It's an unforgiving master. It always is like standing there pushing you to want more and more and more. You're never satisfied with this. It's got to be this plus whatever else. Solomon describes it as vanity, breath, wind. Why are we chasing after it? Solomon's not condemning wealth. In fact, he's going to say it's a good thing toward the end of chapter 5. But he is condemning greed. Think back to the Ten Commandments. What do the Ten Commandments say about coveting? Somebody chime in. Okay? Expand on that a little bit. What are we not supposed to covet? Our neighbor's wife. Goods. Yeah. Okay. So Solomon here is just zeroing in on the idea of money. And that's a marker for a lot, in a lot of cases for like, you know, if in Abraham's day it was how many flocks and herds do you have in our day, it's the size of the, the, your bank account or something like that, which is ironic because it's not like everybody knows what that is, right? And yet, it's some sort of measure of status, that sort of thing. But God says in the Ten Commandments and also repeats the same idea in the New Testament, don't covet. Coveting isn't just about money. It can be about people. It can be about circumstances. It can be about intangible things. Uh, the way it speaks of it in one of Paul's letters, he says, he describes those who don't know God as those who are greedy or covetous, which is idolatry. So why does Solomon condemn the love of money here? Because it's idolatry. Jesus said it this way, you cannot serve God and money. You can't have two masters. Why can you not have two masters? Okay, um, it's much for the same reason why you can't have two wives, and you won't love both. I mean, look at all of the examples of polygamy in the Old Testament. There was the one that was favored and the one that was not. So 
So people can deceive themselves and think that that sort of a circumstance works, but we cannot serve two masters. Our finite minds are only capable of loving and serving one thing at a time, realistically. So the question is, is it going to be God or is it going to be something else? Here's the irony. If you're someone who's greedy and you say, if I only had a little bit more, what does Solomon say to you in verse 11? When you get more stuff, what do you also get with more stuff? More problems? It says those who consume them increase. Taxes. Friends you never knew you had. Relatives you haven't heard of in years. Come knocking at your door if they find out that you win the lottery. Not that any of you should be playing it. But theoretically, someone in another church, if they won the lottery. Right. You found it on the ground. You turned it in. Um, or if you came into an inheritance. Or some penny stock you bought exploded and you found yourself immeasurably rich. Whatever the circumstance, Solomon says, the more that you have, the more the demands that there are on what you have. So he asks this question that we often don't think about. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? What good does it do you to have more beyond, this, the, beyond the point of meeting your basic needs? What good does it do you long-term in just a general sort of perspective? What good does it do you? All you can do is just say, I'm watching it, it's getting more and more, and then all the things that drag it down are getting more and more, and is it worth it? Now, obviously, if you make $20,000 and you have uh, $20,000 of expenses, and then you were to make $50,000, and now you have $40,000 of expenses, you're still coming out ahead. But Solomon's not really focused on all the specific details of those things. He's just saying... Why are you chasing after these things? Is it a sufficient goal, a good master? What is the end of greed? Not only do you find more problems, more things to steal away what you have tried to strive for, but verse 12 says, the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. If you're working so hard that you're dead tired, you fall asleep, you might not even dream because you're just so tired. If you have so much that you can sit around and eat to your heart's content and not have to work hard, you're going to stay up nights. Now, it's possible for someone in either circumstance to have the opposite situation. Well, again, wisdom literature, general principles. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Again, going back to verses 8 and 9, or even uh, the beginning of chapter 4, sometimes we think the solution would be if I could just trade places, right? You know, the prince and the pauper, the dozen or so iterations of that sort of idea. If we just traded places, everything would be better. And, and then they trade places and they realize, oh, there's, there's a different set of problems and difficulties. Solomon is saying, you get more and more and more, it won't make you happy. You get more and more and more, more and more will be taken away from you. You get more and more, you're not going to sleep easy at night. Why should we not be greedy? The underlying reason is we shouldn't love something other than God. 
That's the basic reason, the fundamental reason. But the practical reason is, it doesn't work. But we fall for it over and over again. If I had a different, whatever, you fill in the blank. If I had more, I've seen this in my own life with, with different hobbies. You, you find a new interest, you get really excited about it, you pour a whole bunch of time in it, and then you realize, this is a lot of work. Why wasn't I happy with one or five of this instead of ten or twenty of it? it it's not worth it. Or um, you find yourself adopting the same attitude of the people around you. This is their life. And as Christians, this whatever this is cannot be our life, right? God is supposed to be our life. God is supposed to be our focus. We, greed can certainly happen at any place, whether you have nothing or whether you have everything. But greed sort of seems to be what leads up to this pursuit of riches, right? The second set of verses, 13 through 17, I think talk about the idea more of, of stinginess. So, I really want, I really want, I really want, I really want, and then once I get it, what's my attitude toward it? Yeah, it's mine. Verse 13, There is a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Now, again, I don't think Solomon is saying it's sinful to have a savings account. I don't think Solomon is saying it's wrong to plan for the future. He indicates things in Proverbs that say it's very good to plan ahead for the future and all of those sorts of things. But if I look at something as mine and only mine, I may adopt the attitude of the man in Jesus' parable who says, I might lose it, so I'm going to hide it. Verse 14. What's the irony, verse 14? You can still lose it even if you hoard it, right? When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, there was nothing to support him. And it doesn't only affect you. Why should we not be stingy and hoard what God has given to us? because probably it flows out of that attitude of loving something more than God, because you can still lose it, verse 14. What does verse 15 say? Good. Yeah. The pharaohs used to get buried with all their stuff. What happened to it? Robbers took it. Some of them put it in museums. No, um, it clearly didn't go with them. We love stuff. And it rots. And it breaks. And it gets stolen. And when you die, it gets sold at a garage sale or thrown in the trash. How many of you have ever been to an estate sale? 
The irony of estate sales to me is that sometimes the people running the estate sales want exorbitant amounts of money for what things that clearly nobody wants. And then at the end of the estate sale, you see them loading up a dumpster, and it's like, if you just mark that for 50% less, someone would have taken it. But the point is, the point is, do you want your life to be summed up in the stuff that people come and pick over after you're dead? Is that really worth living for? He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. So, here's, here's an interesting parallel to uh, something that says in Colossians. God holds everything together, right? Scientists tell us that we're mostly empty space. We don't feel like we're mostly empty space. I'm not talking about the comments that we say sometimes. I'm talking about the composition of the universe is mostly empty space that's held together by an unknown force that scientists can't explain, but that the Bible says is the hand of God upholding all things. We look at the objects that we can touch with our bodies that are mostly empty space, and we pick them up and they seem solid and they seem real, and Solomon says, they're dust, they're breath, they're gone. So don't love stuff. It's empty. It's, in the long run, worthless. You cannot take it with you. Verse 16 parallels verse 15. This also is a grievous evil, exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. You start out the world with nothing to your name, you leave the world with nothing to your name. It may be in someone else's name, but it's nothing in your name. Right? So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Why do we spend so much time chasing after things that appear valuable but are insubstantial? And, verse 17, throughout his life he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Sometimes it, and I don't think I'm reading in the text, it may just be saying like at the end of the day or he's by himself, so he's, it's like he's just you know one candle in a dark room. But sometimes what happens is people have a ton of stuff and instead of them enjoying it, they get to a point where they become more stingy when they have a lot than when they had nothing. And so you'll have the extraordinarily rich person who will you know, wear old worn out clothes and, and won't turn on the heat and, and all these other sorts of things just because they don't want to lose any of what they had. They're hoarding it. They're hanging on to it as tightly as they can. And it says, with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Vexation. Trouble. Difficulty. How many of you had to buy insurance for things? Yeah? It's expensive. We don't like buying it. The more stuff you have, the more risk you have, the more you have to pay to insure it. Keeping up on all those things is trouble. It's difficulty. It's frustration. I don't know if you've ever had to make a claim on something. It's work. It's hard. Sometimes, if it's a small thing, or like it's just not worth the hassle. Sickness. You can worry yourself sick over what will happen to the stuff that you have. Or you can work yourself to sickness trying to add to it or preserve it. Anger. 
Why anger? If someone threatens it, what's your response? They're, they're threatening what I love. They better get out of my way. You can be ruled by greed or covetousness. You can be characterized by stinginess. Both of those are miserable ways to live. And we've all toyed with them, even if we don't have a ton of money. And on that fact, just as a simple observation, if you worked a job where you made $30,000 a year for 30-some years, you'd have a million dollars flow through your hand. We don't see it all at once, but we do see it incrementally. And so we think maybe this doesn't apply to us because I'm not in that circumstance. Most of us will be somewhere around that circumstance if we work most of our lives. So are we going to love that money or what are we going to do with it? What's Solomon's response to either covetousness or stinginess? Verse 18. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor, in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, but this is his reward. If you're going to enjoy the benefits of your work, enjoy the benefits of your work while you're alive. Because that's the only window of opportunity that you have. Now, Solomon's not talking about like ultimate realities like, are you going to go to spend eternity with God? Or are you going to go to spend eternity apart from God? That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is, if you work and you get money from that work, where is the only place that you can spend it? Right here and now. So it's not wrong to save, to invest, to multiply what you have. But if you only save and invest and multiply for the sake of getting to the end of your life and saying, look what I've accomplished, Solomon is saying, you've missed your opportunity to enjoy the fruits of your labor. Time and again, I've seen people who wait for retirement to do the things that they want to do. Now, I'm not saying live extravagantly or be careless or foolish, but if you have opportunity to do something with your family... You don't know how you're going to feel when you're 65 or 70. But odds are it will be that it will be harder than when you're 50 to do the thing that you want to do. Now the corrective to that is we can be faithful with what God has given us at whatever point we are. Whether you're 5 or 25 or 75 or whatever, you can be faithful to God and be wise with what He's given you and enjoy the blessings that He's put at your disposal. But particularly for those of you who are younger, the kids in this room, are you going to live just so you can get more and more money? Or are you going to take it and use it for useful things during the course of your life? In the context of the church, are you going to serve fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? That can be applied in a variety of ways. You know someone has a need? 
I, I could help meet that need. We say we're gonna do a special project toward emissions. I could help with that. Um, whatever else it might be. I'm not saying these things for personal advantage. My goal, and I hope this is clear, is not to get rich off of any of you, particularly when you're going through a difficult or a trying time. My goal is for all of us to use what we have faithfully to advance God's work and meet the basic needs of our church and all those sorts of things. So, when it comes to our attitude toward money and the work that leads up to what we have, do we eat and drink and enjoy ourselves? Do we enjoy the basic blessings that God has given to us? God gives you food. God gives you good things to drink. God gives you um, a place to live. Whatever it might be, God blesses us in a variety of ways. Are we satisfied with that? Do we enjoy it? Or do we always wish for something different? Recognizing, as Solomon says in the first few verses, 10 through 12, you chase after the something different, it will have its own set of problems. Or, you try to hold it all in, and you can still lose it. Here's the ironic thing. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. God blesses us all in different ways at different times. The more that I go on in my admittedly not very many years, the more that I am convinced that when I try to grasp the things that God has put into my hands, I often don't have what I need to do what I think I should do. If I am willing to be generous in various ways, God more than abundantly meets our needs. And that's not always a money thing. Sometimes it's through friendships and help in various other ways. It's not just money. But, but if, are we going to hang on to things and love them and be like, like Scrooge in a Christmas carol, alone, friendless, counting our money, everyone hates us, no one wants to be around us, we're miserable. Or... We're going to say, I have opportunity to do good in this world, especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let's do that good that God has equipped us to do. Verse 19, Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. So that's contrast with verse 14, Riches are lost, nothing to support him, and again, can this happen to someone who's genuinely trying to follow God? Yes. In 2008, people who loved and served God faithfully saw their retirement accounts dwindle to seemingly nothing. The reality. But the general principle that Solomon is upholding is this. If God blesses you, recognize it's from God. Recognize that it's a gift. Take advantage of that gift. Recognize that it's about more than money. Verse 20, He will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. And take that in several different directions. We could take it the direction of 
you know, looking for the next thing to happen so we're not satisfied with the thing we're doing now. Or I think it's more just the simple fact of what I think Solomon is saying that when you are enjoying the life that God has given to you, you are not so focused on how old you are, how far it is to the next goal, all of those sorts of things. Not that you're not aware of them, but it's not the main focus of your life. You recognize God has blessed me in so many different ways. And we seek opportunities to bless other people as well. So we have a choice looking at a passage like this. Is my goal to get as much as I can knowing that there will be more things to take it away from me, knowing that I may not sleep well at night, knowing that I'm committing idolatry against God, will I love something, money or whatever else it is, more than God? You've got to pick a master, and money is a bad master. If God blesses me, do I look at that as an opportunity to say, this is mine, this is my pile of stuff, and I'm going to sit on it and stay away from it, and nothing can get it from me, recognizing, as it says in this passage, you can still lose it. It won't make you happy. None of it's going to go past this life, and you're going to miss your opportunity to have any enjoyment of what God has blessed you with. If you have that attitude of, this is mine, I'm going to sit on it. Or, do we look at the end of the passage and say, I can enjoy the basic pleasures of life that God has given to me. Food and drink, companionship, the reward of a job well done, and see that it is a gift from God's hand that I have those blessings, great or small, and as I enjoy and recognize those blessings, then I'm not consumed with greed, I'm not consumed with stinginess, I'm not frustrated with life, like so many of the people around me who love money and chase after it, who try to hang on to what they have at all costs, forgetting that the only reason I have anything is because God has loaned it to me for a little while. So, not greedy, not stingy, but working diligently and enjoying the blessings of God. Hard thing to do. But I think it's what God calls us to do from this passage. Let's pray. Lord, help us to love you instead of stuff. Help us to be generous with the way that you've blessed us. Help us to enjoy the life that you have given to us. Certainly if we are living sinfully in some way, we have opportunity to correct it. Certainly as we go through life, we will always look back and see things that we think we ought to have done differently. But in this specific moment where you have placed us, do we love you above everything else? Do we seek to serve you with what you have given to us? Do we enjoy the blessings from your hand? Lord, help us to think about these things this week. In Christ's name, amen.